Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 28, the book of Acts, chapter 12. Well, we just barely got into uh, Acts chapter 12 last week. And the first thing we see mentioned in this chapter is that Herod Agrippa is now the king of Judah. Now this chapter will end with his death. Now his grandfather was Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was the first Herod to rule. But his death, just after Christ was born, ended the rule of kings over Judah for about 40 years until Agrippa was put into power by the newly coronated Roman Emperor Claudius. And in between Herod the Great and Herod Agrippa then, Roman procurators governed the land. This is a good time to also recall that the so-called Jewish kings, Herod the Great and Agrippa, weren't Jews even though they called themselves that. They were of Edomian, Edomite, descendants of Edom, Esau. That was their stock on their father's side. And Nabataean stock, that is, descendants of Ishmael on Herod's mother's side. So the Herods were a combination of Esau and Ishmael. What does that tell you? The Jews mocked Herod the Great for his claim of Jewishness, yet they accepted Agrippa's probably because he seemed to genuinely follow Judaism. Now it's interesting that to this day, adhering to the religion of Judaism is the primary test for determining whether a person's a Jew or not. Ethnicity is often secondary. Well, let's reread this chapter in its entirety, since we only got to verse 3 last time. So, open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 12. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1376. The book of Acts, chapter 12. It was around this time that King Herod began arresting and persecuting certain members of the Messianic community. And he had Yaakov, Yochanan's brother, put to death by the sword. And when Herod saw just how much this pleased the Judeans, he went on to arrest Kepha, Peter, as well. Now it was during the days of Matzah. So when Herod seized him, he threw him in prison. He handed him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each, with the intention of bringing him to public trial after Pesach, after Passover. So Kepha was being held under watch in prison. But intense prayer was being made to God on his behalf by the Messianic community. Now the night before Herod was going to bring him to trial, Kepha was sleeping between two soldiers and he was bound with two chains. Guards were at the door, keeping watch over the prison. And suddenly an angel of Adonai stood there and a light shone in the cell and he tapped Kepha's side and he woke him and he said, Hurry, get up! He said, and the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals, and he did. Throw on your robe, he said. Follow me. Well, going out, 
Peter followed him, but didn't realize that what was happening through the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. Now having passed a first guard and a second, they arrived at the iron gate leading to the city. This opened to them by uh, this opened to them by itself and they made their exit. They went down the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Kepha came to himself and said, Now I know for sure that the Lord sent his angel to rescue me from Herod's power and from everything the Judean people were hoping for. Realizing what had happened, he went to the house of Miriam, the mother of Yochanan, surnamed Mark, in other words, John Mark, where many people had gathered to pray. And he knocked at the outside door, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer, and she recognized Kepha's voice and was so happy, she ran back in without opening the door and announced that Kepha was standing outside. You're out of your mind, they said to her. She insisted it was true. So they said, it's his angel. Meanwhile, Kepha kept knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. And motioning to them with his hand to be quiet, he told them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison and said, Tell this to Yaakov, I, uh, rather to, to uh, Jacob, really James is how it's in our Bibles. Tell this to James and the brothers. And then he left and went, out, went elsewhere. And when daylight came, there was no small commotion among the soldiers over what had become of Kepha. Herod had a thorough search made for him, but they failed to find him, so he cross-examined the guards and ordered them put to death. Then Herod went down to Judah from Caesarea and spent some time there. Now Herod was very angry with the people of Zord and Sidon. So they joined together and sought an audience with him. And after securing the support of Blastus, the king's uh, chief personal assistant, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's land for their food supply. Now a day was set, and Herod in his royal robe sat on the throne and made a speech to them. And the mob cried out, This is the voice of a god, not a man. At once, because Herod did not give the glory to God, an angel of Adonai struck him down. He was eaten away by worms, and he died. But the word of the Lord went on growing and being multiplied. Barnabas and Shaul, Barnabas and Paul, having completed their errand, returned from Jerusalem, bringing with them Yochanan, surnamed Mark. Verse 3 identifies the group who was pleased that James had been executed and Peter had been arrested by Agrippa. It it, uh, identifies them as Iodeus. Iodeus. The Greek word can mean two different but related things. It can mean Jews, as just Jews in general, or it can indicate Judeans. More specifically, Judeans are Jews who live in the Holy Land province of Roman-controlled Judea. Now sometimes the setting and the issue tells us which of these meanings is intended. Other times it's almost impossible to know. The scene in verse 3 takes place in Jerusalem of Judea. So most likely the intent is to say the Jews of Judea were the ones that were happy to see King Herod Agrippa, what he did to James and to Peter. Now there were more politically sensitive and religiously motivated people in Judea than in the rest of the the Holy Land. 
because Jerusalem was the power center of, Jeru- of Judaism. And so these Judean Jews paid more attention to all the latest intrigues and, and issues since the leadership was there to stir up trouble. But those Jews who lived outside of Judea, in the countryside, in the diaspora, now they were more interested in daily life and family. Essentially, the Judeans were the inside the beltway Jews of the Holy Land. Now Peter's arrest occurred during the springtime feast period of Passover, unleavened bread and first fruits. Now exactly at what point during this series of feasts, we don't know. This means that Jerusalem would have been crowded beyond measure with thousands upon thousands of Jewish pilgrims coming from all over the Holy Land and the Diaspora. So we're told that Agrippa decided it would be best, politically, to wait until after Passover to deal with Peter. That is, after all the crowds had left for home. Now I pointed out last week that by now it had been become common practice for Jews in usual everyday speech to refer to the entire sequence of the three spring feasts of as either Passover or unleavened bread, Pesach or Matzah. And just like we see here in verses 3 and 4, the two terms aren't meant to be precise but rather is general, even interchangeable, even in the same conversation. Once the crowds left, the only remaining Jews would be the Jews of Judea, the ones that had more interest in seeing the members of the way being punished, and if possible, disbanded due to them not being politically correct according to the religious doctrines of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So Peter's under arrest and he's in a Roman prison. However, the point is made in verse 5 that intense prayer was being made on his behalf. Now David Stern makes a wonderful and salient point about prayer here. He says that in the few words of this verse we are taught something invaluable about the nature of true, meaningful prayer and the one who prays. He says five points are made in this verse. First, that prayer should be intense, not casual. That is, you need to be still. You need to be focused need to be purposeful rather than repeating mantras or form prayers that often are said without actually contemplating what it is you're even saying. I am one whose mind will sometimes wander when I pray silently. That happened to you? So long ago I learned to pray out loud, even in private, so I can stay focused. Second of all, when the verse says prayers were being made, it means prayer was ongoing. Prayer for Peter wasn't a one-and-done outburst. I've often asked myself if after approaching God with a specific request, 
whether it's even right for me to keep repeating that same prayer as though God is forgetful. But I think that occasional thought really just reflects my worldly thinking creeping in. Because Old or New Testament praying continually to God over a specific matter is not portrayed as needlessly pestering Him. Rather, it's obeying. It's submitting to Him. We are commanded to do so. And it is entirely to our benefit. Third, our prayers need to be directed to God, not through an intermediary. Otherwise, our relationship is not with Him, it's with another. And He has stretched out His hand to all who trust Him. He's offered us to come and stand before the throne of grace and speak directly to Him and hear directly from Him. Fourth, prayer was being made to God on Peter's behalf. That is, the prayer was not general. It was specific concerning Peter's precise difficulties. You know, I've often said, I I really don't want to see the words unspoken prayer on our prayer list. An unspoken prayer will be an unheard prayer, and thus an unanswered prayer. It goes against every biblical principle to essentially pray nothing. If it's too intimate to share, then don't. Keep it between yourself and the Lord. But often, honestly, it's simply an issue of pride or a fear of embarrassment that keeps us from being specific as we ask others to join in prayer with us. Read the Psalms as David is so open and honest even highly emotional sometimes about about his predicaments <laughs> self-induced and, and, and how he feels about it all you know it's a very good model for us and fifth <clears throat> the community of believers prayed for Peter if we are truly going to be a community of believers then we need to share our joys as well as our concerns. We are to rally around one another, especially in our hour of need. We're not called to isolation. And we aren't called to be only concerned about our own needs. This is why I both ask you to put your needs and the needs of others on our prayer list and please be as specific as possible. But also, that when you receive that prayer list, that you take the time, just that precious few minutes, to pray over each request individually. James says this in James 5.16, Therefore, openly acknowledge your sins to one another. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and it's effective. Well, what follows in the next few verses 
is the result of this intense prayer being made to God on Peter's behalf. So the Passover week of festivals is now over. Jerusalem's now more or less back to normal and this is when Agrippa planned to deal with Peter no doubt intending to kill him. Now we don't know exactly in which of the several prisons in Jerusalem <coughs> that Peter was being detained so I'm not going to speculate. We are directly told however that Peter was guarded so closely that two Roman soldiers were literally chained to Peter even inside his cell and there were two more soldiers stationed at the entrance into the prison Peter was asleep between two sleeping Roman soldiers he was chained to when suddenly an angel appeared before him it says that a light shone in his cell angels are almost always accompanied with light now we are told that the angel literally angel literally tapped Peter's side to awaken him. It's not unusual for an angel to make physical contact with a human being as like when Jacob wrestled with an angel who tapped Jacob's hip and he dislocated it to, to end the struggle. The angel issued instructions for Peter to hurry up, get dressed, throw on his robe, follow him. It is clear that Peter, foggy, from sleeping wasn't at all sure what was happening or, or, or who was breaking him out of prison or even if it was actually happening but somehow the chains fell off of his wrists and in all the commotion the guards that lay next to him remained soundly asleep Peter thought he was dreaming but as the minutes passed and as Peter led by the angel walked right by two guards stationed at the prison entrance he began to suspect you know what maybe this is for real well we're told that they finally arrived at the iron gate leading to the city which gate is often asked but since we don't know the location of the prison we can't ascertain which city gate is being described yet Luke's description likely means that in Peter's day both the location of the prison and of the specific iron gate were so well known there just was no need to say anymore. I want to pause here just a moment to remind us all that when the writers of the New Testament wrote they weren't thinking in terms of speaking to readers far into the future. Especially not thinking about communicating to Gentiles. The exceptions being, in some cases, John and in his book of Revelation, Paul and some of his passages in his letters. <clears throat> These current events were generally being recorded for the use of people in the Jewish culture in contemporary times. And while the Torah was written specifically for the purpose of future generations having God's instructions at hand as it's stated in the Torah itself no such claim is made by the authors of the books of the New Testament so sometimes places and locations that are mentioned are difficult if not impossible to pin down and descriptions that we'd love to have can be very sparse well the iron gate we're told opened by itself no doubt meaning it had been locked it was customary that city gates were locked 
once the sun went down. Because this helped keep their city residents safe from robbers or marauders during the night. Well, the angel continued to lead Peter down one street out of danger. Suddenly he disappears. That's when Peter knew for sure this was God in action. Well, sort of buried in this narrative is a conundrum. Why did God save Peter but let James die at the hand of Herod Agrippa? See, this is the sort of thing that if we've lived long enough, something of this nature has happened in our lives. And we've wrestled with such a question. My father fought in World War II. And when I could get him to even speak about it, which was rare, by the way, mostly towards the end of his life, it was usually about some dire situation in which for some inexplicable reason he survived. But many others around him didn't. There seemed to be no pattern, no rhyme, no reason for who was saved and who wasn't. It was clear that he was very troubled by this. No doubt feeling guilty to be alive as others around him were dying. Now this is mostly the reason I think he didn't want to talk about it. Because he would say, why? Why did he make it and others perished? They weren't any less valuable than he. He was no better than them. Was it pure serendipity? Wrong place, wrong time. One foot to the left, you live. One foot to the right, you die. Or was God in control and choosing this one to live and that one to die? I think it's easier for us to sit in the safety of our sanctuary or maybe our home and say confidently to ourselves, well, God's in control. But when it's happening to you, as you look back, I suspect that the experience probably alters how you think about it. For my father, a devout Christian man, he had no answers. He only had gratitude and at times deep sadness that would well up in him even 50 years after the horrific events. He told me that as the war ended, he became determined to be a good man, to live a good life, because that was his duty now that for whatever reason, the Lord spared him. So I have no good answers for you as to why God chose to rescue Peter by means of an audacious, supernatural rescue mission. Yet he stood by and he allowed James to be wrongly convicted and executed. This is where faith plays the biggest role in our lives as worshipers of the God of the Bible. Something happens and nothing seems obvious, nothing seems logical about it. 
as to the how and the why. There's nothing left but to believe that either God oversees everything and has reasons beyond our ability to comprehend or everything is just mostly due to the luck of the draw. One way allows for a realization of hope and the mercy of our Creator. The other way leads only to despair and fear at the unpredictable turns of fate. Well, Peter made his way to Miriam's house. She was the mother of John called Mark. John Mark was a cousin of the disciple Barnabas. At this time, especially in Jerusalem, the believers seemed to meet in homes, at other times in public places, and yet at other times in secret hideouts, depending on the current social and political circumstances. Obviously, Miriam's house was a known and regular meeting place for the core group of Jerusalem believers, and when Peter arrived, the group was in the midst of prayer for Peter. No doubt Miriam's house was larger than typical in order to be a suitable meeting place. So Peter now goes up to the house, he knocks on the door, and what comes next is almost comical. Miriam's house servant, Rhoda, goes to the door. Peter was calling to those inside, and when she heard him, she instantly recognized his voice. But Rhoda got so excited, she ran from the door, forgot to let Peter in, because she was in such a hurry to tell everybody that Peter's here. They told her she was crazy. But she kept insisting. It seems to have never occurred to her. All she had to do was go back to the door and open it and prove she was right. Finally, somebody said, Ah, it's not Peter, it's his angel. This remark gives me a good opportunity to talk about how Jews thought about angels in this era, but also to reveal another little pet peeve of mine. The reality is that as much as heaven and angels seem to be hot topics in every age of Christianity, our present time included, it was also that way among the ancient Jews. And since the Holy Scriptures are our sole divine source of reliable information about heaven and about angels, it's pretty disappointing to find that so little is said about either subject in the Bible. I can sum up heaven by saying it's a spiritual place that resides in another dimension. It is God's dwelling place. It's eternal, it's beautiful, and sin isn't present there. Angels live in heaven when they're not someplace else. And when a believer dies, we go there. Outside of that, there's just not much else divulged about heaven. Same thing with angels. We know they exist, that they can appear in human form, that there's different kinds. Light is usually involved and they're sent by God. There are archangels who seem to be at the top of a hierarchy of angel ranks. That's not all, but that's most of what we will learn in the scriptures about angels. Now today, it has become very popular to think that when humans die, we get our wings and become angels. Or that each one of us has a guardian angel 
Or in the case of my wife, she said she has several very tired ones. (laughs) But how are angels created? When? How many are there? Are they making more? Do they exist forever? Are there really different kinds or do they just have different jobs? What do they do? Are all angels good angels? If so, then what's a fallen angel? See, these questions and more are common within Christianity and again, were also of great interest to ancient Judaism. The bottom line is that angelology, the study of angels, yeah, it really is a word, And all the resultant doctrines that have been formed about angels are almost entirely the product of the imaginings of the human mind. And they haven't evolved that much over the centuries. In fact, I can say that generally speaking, the doctrines of angels as found in Christian tradition came almost entirely from ancient Judaism. And much of what Judaism believed about angels came from Persian angelology. So I caution you to be careful in what you choose to believe about angels or what you read about angels in heaven for that matter in these many books that are written on the subject because they consist almost entirely of doctrines and personal opinions and outright fantasy in some cases usually presented as biblical fact. I mean, how can a few sentences, and I mean a few sentences, of scripture about heaven or angels result in a 400-page book? Much is added. Leaps of assumption are made, and I highly question its real value, other than to distract us from spending time to learn what God has actually revealed to us in His Word. So when we read of some believer in this crowd of believers at Miriam's house comment, it can't possibly be Peter at the door. It's his angel. This isn't to be taken as new biblical information about angels. It's just rather what Jews in that era believed as part of their halakha. And the Talmud indicates a belief in Judaism, at least by some rabbis, of the existence of personal guardian angels for each and every Jew. The response of this believer about a person knocking at the door who sounds like Peter indicates another tradition that guardian angels can take on certain characteristics of the human person they're assigned to. But most of these thoughts about angels amount to cultural superstition. Becoming a believer didn't erase all those thoughts. Well, finally, the startled crowd at Miriam's house thought to open the door. And to their shock, there stood Peter. And he raised his hand to quiet them. Then he went about telling them what had happened. He urgently wanted to get this information about his escape and and, and his well-being to his co-leader of the way, 
Yaakov, or as he's called in our English Bibles, James, who's the brother of Jesus. And because it's an important piece of information and not trivia, just remember that the Hebrew name Yaakov translates in English to Jacob, not to James. So why do we find the name James in our New Testaments? It happened upon the creation of the King James Bible. In the New Testament, in honor of King who? James. The Bible editors substituted James for Jacob and has remained so ever since. Now let me make a comment. I'm going to say up front is at least partly my speculation. But I think it's pretty well founded and it will interest you. Here in Acts 12, we see how King Agrippa and the Jews of Judea, not all of course, just the most politically correct and zealous, went on this murderous rage against the way, or better, really, against the leadership of the way. We really don't have any firm reason as to why this began. In any case, we do know from certain passages in the New Testament and from some extra-biblical writings that the earliest believers in Christ at times had to meet in secret locations. This really occurred primarily in Jerusalem because elsewhere the persecutions against the believers weren't so intense or they didn't even exist at all so as to make hiding necessary. Now we've already seen in the book of Acts how the persecutions would come and go. And of course, when the persecutions became intense, the believers would keep a much lower profile than when the persecutions lost steam. Thus it's believed that the secret sign of the ichthyus, the fish symbol, came to use about now. Some years ago, my wife and I made a discovery in a garbage dump in Jerusalem that has had quite an impact on us. It was the result of a map taken from an old back issue of Biblical Archaeology Review and a small book that I read that told about the discovery of the three-part symbol that has become a major symbol of Hebrew roots and of the Messianic movement. The fish to the menorah to the Star of David. You see it here on the graphic. Now I've taken a few of you to this very spot that we discovered. And God willing, on our next tour, I'll take a few more of you there. It's off the beaten track. You definitely won't find guides or tourists milling around. Um, It's an underground cavern with a secret entrance hidden at the bottom of a large mikveh that in recent times has been fenced off with a concrete bunker built around it to keep people out. It was there in that cavern that about a half century ago an elderly Greek monk found pottery shards with this three-part symbol scratched on them and the same symbol etched into the cave walls. Now the pottery has been scientifically dated and it goes back to the time of James and Peter and Paul. The cavern is substantial in size and its location is such that there's little doubt that at the times of persecution the earliest Jewish believers, probably mainly the leadership, 
met underground here. I'll add a little anecdote. That when I told Rabbi Baruch about this, he was very skeptical. So I took him there, talked to him about it. And at least it piqued his interest sufficiently that he went to the archaeology department at Hebrew University where he was an adjunct professor at that time. He told them about my claims. They verified they were fully aware of it and that it was true and accurate. So as concerns today's lesson, I speculate this. James, different James, had just been executed. Peter was going to be executed as well, but God miraculously saved him. And upon his escape, Peter goes in the dead of the night to Miriam's house where believers were stealthily meeting in prayer for Peter. He gestures for them to be quiet, no doubt because in their excitement from seeing him alive, they were making too much noise and he didn't want them to be discovered. Then in verse 17, he tells someone who is at the meeting to go and tell James, now this is Yeshua's brother James, and some other brothers, meaning other members of the group, probably the leadership, about what happened. Then Peter left quickly and escaped from Jerusalem. Why? Peter was an escaped prisoner. He was in danger. And in fact, all the believers were in danger. Why didn't Peter go to James himself? James was in hiding. The brothers spoken of were the leadership, part of the twelve disciples. Only a few of the believers in Jerusalem even knew where to find James. Peter likely didn't know how to find James. I have every reason to believe that when the events of Acts chapter 12 were occurring, James was hiding in that cavern that we found in a garbage dump on top of Mount Zion. The pieces fit together quite adequately, I think, for me to come to this conclusion. Well, in verse 18, we find the soldiers who had been guarding Peter were deeply disturbed to find him missing. This was not going to end well for them. This is because it was Roman law that the guards who allowed prisoners to escape could be held personally liable to suffer the punishment that had been intended for that prisoner. Peter's fate was going to be death. But in addition to worrying for their lives, they were confused and perplexed because they were still wearing the chains that had been attached to Peter. How does a man lying between two soldiers slip out of his chains making no noise at all get up, get dressed, leave the cell, go through another set of doors with other guards who see nothing and escape. Sure enough, Herod doesn't buy such an outrageous story from these guards. He has Jerusalem searched. No trace of Peter's found. So after interrogating the Roman soldiers, they're executed for what Agrippa no doubt thinks is their complicity in Peter's escape. Well, after this, Herod Agrippa went to Caesarea Maritima for a time. Now, likely, the trip had nothing to do with Peter escaping because he spent time in Jerusalem. 
But he also spent as much time, if not more, in Caesarea, the seat of the Roman government over Judea. He was likely only in Jerusalem to participate in the festival days, but now they're concluded. Now Caesarea carried the nickname of Little Rome, and he preferred being with the Roman aristocracy, which he had been since he was a small child. Well, next comes the lead-up to an interesting explanation of Agrippa's sudden death. Starting in verse 20, we're told that Agrippa was quite upset with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now, these two cities were on the southern Phoenician coast. They had long, friendly relations with Israel going back to the time of David and Solomon. Israel was perhaps the primary food supplier for these two major cities. We are given no hint as to what caused this grave offense that, was, that caused Herod's anger against these two cities. But it was so serious that a delegation of high officials came to meet with Blastus, Agrippa's chief negotiator. Now what made this all the more critical is that very likely this was when the prophesied famine that the believing prophet Agav had predicted would occur during the reign of Claudius happened. The timing lines up quite well for it. It's not that Israel was the only source of food for Tyre and Sidon, but with an empire-wide famine, food was scarce and it was expensive. Kings and government officials set the food prices. They determined where supplies would go. So basically, Agrippa used what was very likely a trumped-up grievance against Tyre and Sidon at the time of a food crisis in order to extract some special political concessions that would give him more power over them or make him a wealthier man, or probably both. Well, Blastus obtains what King Agrippa wanted from this delegation. And once accomplished, it was time to put on the big show. So Agrippa gets all decked out in spectacular Roman attire. He sits down on his throne and certain dignitaries come to hear Agrippa make a speech to them. They, of course, respond with over-the-top flattery something he fully expected and demanded. But they even went so far as to say to him, this is the voice of a god, not a man. Then Herod Agrippa made a fatal mistake. Rather than deflecting such ludicrous honor as being a god. And remember, Agrippa had made himself as a representative of the Jewish religion. He accepted it. God struck him down. We're told he was eaten up by worms. That the punishment of his blasphemy was immediate made it clear to all this was divine judgment. Now I'm going to tell you, this is no folktale that we see here in the Bible, or is it an exaggeration? Josephus writes about Agrippa's death and he confirms what happened and the reason for it and what he died of. But let's also be clear that these words about worms don't necessarily mean that his death was a result of essentially being eaten from the inside out by worms. But there's a hint that indeed it could have. 
It is a standard understanding that when a corpse is put into the grave, that the flesh is eaten up by worms. It's the natural result of death, decomposition. However, it's also a term that is used to describe especially the demise of the unrighteous. Even though people understood the same thing happened to anybody who died. Now it's hard to know what the disease was that killed Herod. Josephus tells us it was something gastrointestinal. There actually are recorded incidents of parasites entering into humans and consuming people from the inside out. In any case, whatever it was, it was painful and it was gruesome. Well, as we near the end of the chapter, we're informed that the word of the Lord continued to grow and to multiply. No doubt, now that Agrippa was dead, the persecutions against the believers once again calmed down, since once again a Roman procurator uh, procurator ruled, and, and this meant that the Sanhedrin could no longer run around and incite the crowds or, 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 or legally execute people like James and Peter. So essentially, a contrast is drawn between this wicked man, Herod Agrippa, who tried to eliminate the way, and the great successes that God achieved through the way, despite all the persecution. The final verse of this chapter marks a turn from the focus being on Jerusalem and the Jews to the diaspora and Gentiles. The disciples that had gone to Antioch but returned to Jerusalem would take John Mark with them back to Antioch. Now recall that their purpose for coming back to Jerusalem was to bring famine relief funds from generous believers in Antioch. How long they would stay in Jerusalem before returning to Antioch that we're going to read about now, or next week anyway, in Acts chapter 13, is unknown. Now for the next several chapters, the focus is going to shift to Paul and to his missionary journeys. We'll begin chapter 13 next week.